If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Today's guest is Gary Morton. Gary is a distinguished keynote speaker, consultant, and author. He's a graduate of the famous West Point Military Academy who went on to become a platoon leader and tank commander in the United States Army's renowned Task Force 468. He's also a former VP and general manager of the medical devices manufacturer Stryker. In addition to all that, he's an alum of the prestigious Harvard Business School's Executive Education Program. I'm pleased to have Gary on this tour to tell us a little bit about himself, his life, his background, his experiences, and of course, his new book, which is titled Commanding Excellence, Inspiring Purpose, Passion, and Ingenuity Through Leadership That Matters. Gary, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me, Chi. I I, uh, I believe I can share some some thoughts and insights that will be valuable to the folks that are listening. Great, great. So, Gary, I've mentioned a lot of things here. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. I see you went to uh, West Point, and then you also led a platoon in the army for a few years before you went into civilian life. So, tell us a little bit about your journey from you know, Gary, the young man through West Point and the lessons you learned there and then some of the lessons you learned as a as a platoon leader and tank commander in the Army. Yeah, I feel really uh, blessed with the experiences I had in my early life. You know, I, I went to West Point. It's the, it's the Army version of the military academy. It's been around a long time, a lot of tradition, a lot of great people there, and uh, just had a tremendous experience. Um, it was one of those, uh, a rare school, uh, being a service academy, that there wasn't any graduate programs or PhD programs. So if you were a good student, and I, you know, I was able to, to be a good student there, you got to work with the best professors at the at the academy uh, very closely. And I wrote a number of senior theses. It was just a tremendous experience. And then also there, um, you know, being a military school, there's a whole uh, another level of of um, experience that you have, which is leading. And you get to uh, lead, follow, see other folks lead, uh, lead your peers, lead your lead subordinates and the, the underclass as you as you work your way through there. Really, just a just a tremendous experience there. And then, you know, you leave West Point and you go out in the army and you realize uh, how much you don't know. <laughs> and uh, you know, I would. I was uh, uh, lucky enough. I, I chose to go armor because I had armor as tanks, and uh, that was the branch that I chose to go because uh, that was really one of the reasons that I decided to go into West Point and go into the Army because I had visions of being a tank commander and uh, and um, aspirations of uh, trying to do some of those things that those great commanders did in World War II. But anyway, I, I go out to a unit and you know I just get lucky, uh, really, really lucky. Um, you, you go to a training course after the academy, and then you go out into the regular army, into a unit. And the unit that I went to was really was the worst performing unit at the division that it was a part of, and arguably the worst performing unit in the uh, U.S. Army. Mm. Um, this is at the battalion level, so it's about 600 people. But we got a new commander because the previous commander was just relieved. So I walk into this 
unit that's not very well thought of and really it just have the experience of a lifetime because one year later that unit goes out to the true test at the time it's the cold war and, and the test for how good you are and how combat proficient you are is a, at a place called the national training center oh. and most or most battalions you know you go out and you fight nine battles there and um, you fight against what's called the opposing forces, the op four, and they're good. Uh-huh. And they, they, they know the terrain, they're high, high morale, they're handpicked troops, they're always full strength, and they, they outnumber you two or three to one because they're representing the Soviet Union at the time, military, which outnumbered us significantly. So they're hard to beat. You know, a good unit wins two of nine battles. Uh-huh. A really good unit wins three. One time, a unit won five of the nine, and the Army studied that. We, again, worst unit in the Army, one year later goes out, we go 9-0 and wow. in every single engagement out there. And so not only did the Army study it, we, we changed doctrine. Um, and the way that things happened at the small unit level, you know, in the maneuver battalions and at the company level, in uh, in the um, operations in Kuwait and Iraq in the next over the next 20 years, were, were influenced in a fairly significant way by what we uh, – achieved and what we accomplished there at the National Training Center. Hmm. Now, what caused such a radical change? I know you mentioned the the change in leadership that you got a new commander, but how did that filter down from having a new commander all the way through the ranks? And what what were the little ingredients that led to the big results that you guys achieved in just one year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, this commander really did three things extremely well. Uh, one was he established an absolute clarity of purpose. And by that, I mean that it was it was absolutely certain within that organization what was important, what was most important, and what was unimportant. Mm. And that is key to a clarity of purpose. It's not just about what is important, but it's also about those things that we're not going to be great at. And for us, it was we're going to go 9-0 and at the National Training Center. Now, that seemed like an absurd goal at the time. But then he aligned all the rest of the systems and processes within the organization to do that. And things that were unimportant, like, for example, there was a big change of command ceremony. And in the Army, that's a big deal. Yeah. So there's a new assistant division commander that came in. And all the other battalions were practicing for their uh, out on the parade field for days to try to look good in front of this new division commander or new assistant division commander. Well, we knew that that wasn't really going to help us go 9-0 and at the National Training Center. So we couldn't be horrible because then they put a lot of scrutiny on us and say, what's wrong with this unit? But... We practiced one time, and one time was enough to to uh, you know to be to be good, yeah, uh, good enough at what we were doing. And then we focused all of our time and energy and efforts on you know on how to win the battle. And so we did that, absolute clarity of purpose. And then he was able to, through the way that uh, we organized and through the, the way that um, we set up ourselves to, to do the battles, to spread that obsession to achieve that purpose throughout the entire organization, from the private in the mess hall to the company commanders that are that were leading the tank companies. It was just absolutely tremendous um, experience of leadership. And then thirdly, he unleashed a level of creativity within the organization that was profound. Uh, there were no re- requirements for people that brought ideas forth other than that they had the best interests of the battalion at, at heart. In other words, 
it, it could come from the, the the lowest ranking person to the highest ranking person in that unit. But the good ideas won. Mm -hmm. The good ideas went forward. The good ideas got adopted. The good ideas became part of our standard operating procedures. And, and um, you know, it was just a tremendous experience. And I described that in this, in this book that I wrote um, because the environment that he created, if we could have organizations around the world create those kinds of environments, we can get that kind of performance. Hmm. And why is it that many organizations don't follow that part pattern? Because it stands to reason that, I mean, this commander did everything right. And these things don't seem like they're rocket science. They seem like they're common sense and practical steps that he took to make sure that the team and the units would perform at high levels. So why is it that it's not common practice across the board in many organizations around the world or even many other units in the same um military force yeah uh, good question uh, i think i'd give uh, i give two answers two main reasons that it's not common practice one is um we also had this rare environment inside the fourth mechanized infantry division out of fort fort carson colorado which was our higher headquarters unit and inside our brigade which was our direct higher headquarters unit where the the higher level leaders gave unwavering support to what our commander was trying to achieve. And that is, it, it, it sounds like what you should do if you're a higher level leader, but very few folks can actually do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we were doing was different than doctrine. What we were doing was kind of counter to what you were taught to do or told to do in, um, in certain battle situations, in terms of planning for the battle, that we, we developed a whole number of different systems, but we had support from the top to do that. And it was critical to our success. And they never, you know, when you're, when you're doing something different or something that's out there, if that higher level leader just kind of sneers at it or doesn't support it entirely, well, then all those people in your organization that aren't quite on board, well, they, they, they feel like they're justified in not coming on board. Mm. But when the higher level supports it, boy, it is powerful. And you're able to do things that, um, that you can't necessarily do when you don't have that high level support. So that's number one. Uh, probably number two is, and I asked that same question of uh, John Brown, which we, we haven't gotten to this part yet, but in my... In my business career, I joined a company that grew its earnings at 20% a year for 28 consecutive years, every year and every quarter of every year. And it was a, another phenomenal experience. But um, what that CEO uh, responded to that question with was, well, you know, a lot of people don't do it because, because they're afraid. You know, to put out this goal, this absolutely clear goal, 9 and 0, or 20% growth, and you're, you're putting it on the line. Yeah. You're telling the world, and you're making it very clear what you're intending to accomplish and intending to do. And a lot of people are afraid to do that. So it, the two things I'm learning from this is that, um, to put it like colloquially, it's like, you know, it's, it goes from the head down. Like I know there's a term where I live that says the fish stinks from the head down. So if <laughs> so, if the fish smells like roses from the top, then 
the whole fish is going to smell like roses. I'm just trying to make it colloquial and light. But what I'm just trying to say is basically, you have to have somebody at the top that understands and already buys into the vision from the subordinate and gives them the empowerment and the ability to take initiative and to take charge to do what they need to do to get things going. Absolutely. And, you know, if you happen to be that person at the top, then give your people that leeway. If you're a person that um, is trying to accomplish something unique, then find those kinds of environments that allow you to do that. Yeah, but you'd also have to worry about, you know, that person at the top started from the bottom sometime. So that person would actually have to be trained and exposed to this type of avant-garde thinking for them to be able to know what to do at the right time to help their organizations succeed in the future. So that that's just telling me that basically leadership kind of needs to be taught at the very early stages of life. Like you had the fortunate opportunity to learn leadership early in west point and i and i do believe that this your military commander must have gone through some type of a military school also like a west point or something else so he got that very early correct yes he did as a matter of fact he was a, he was a west point graduate as well yeah so so um i guess my question now would be do we have a flaw in our educational system where we're not teaching leadership to people and then we expect young people 20 30 years in the future become ceos and executives and we put them in or they get leadership positions but they they don't have the um, skill set and the uh, equipment to become be effective effective leaders well, do we have a flaw in our system? I, you know, I'm not sure I would go that far okay. as to say. Can our system get better? Okay. Um, can the systems around the world get better? Absolutely. Mm. You know, I think the the consciousness of what great leadership is is um, it, it is something that's evolving. Uh, within society today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the explosion of information that's out there, it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, in the, in the past, when maybe there it was harder to get uh, a lot of input or information about how to lead or, or whatnot, it, it may have made it um, um, easier in some ways to, to figure it out. Because now there's so much out there and there's so much that's not good yeah. <laughs> about about leadership and whatnot i mean i, I um you know one of the things we did at striker this medical device company is we work very closely with an organization called gallup and gallup is uh, we we developed a relationship with them because one of the ways that they tried to address employee engagement engagement and, and selection and retention and attraction of employees to the organization, it was very statistically based. I mean, they studied it uh-huh. and tried to understand what worked and what didn't. And, it, and that was, you know, that's what our armor battalion did. That's how we achieved what we did at the National Training Center. We spent a year figuring out what worked and what didn't. Um, and we're very objective about it. And, and we were very open and honest with each other about, you know, the simulated battle we just fought in training six months before the NTC rotation. What worked? What didn't work? Let's go through it. Let's figure out how we're going to make it better. Let's not point fingers at each other one. Anyway, um, get, getting back to the point. But what Gallup has, has done and what 
if we could get more rigor applied to a lot of the information that's that's out there today, uh, rigor meaning this is statistically validated. This is an experience of of, uh, of outstanding, exceptional organizations. Um, but we get a lot of, of theory that are not necessarily substantiated by by experience or substantiated by by a, a good solid statistical analysis. You know, and it's uh, you know it, it, it's interesting. So that type of uh, another thing we we tend to in a number of um, leadership approaches tend to focus on making better what's not ideal or what's not good in a person. And the research would show, and certainly my experiences and most experiences of people that have been in leadership for a long time, is you, you don't necessarily focus on those things. You focus on what people do great and get them. And, and build an organization that allows them to do more of that. Great, great. And so you left these services and then you go into civilian life. Did you jump straight into Striker from the I Army? I did, yes. Okay, so what, yeah, were did. So, so, so what were some of the things you learned working in Striker? What were some of the challenges coming out of a system like the U.S. Army into a corporate structure like Striker, and then how were you guys able to, you know, apply the lessons you learned in the military to achieve, help you, the company achieve success at all levels? Yeah, you know, it was a, again just a really unique and special experience for me I, coming out of the military. So I, I've learned how to lead people. Uh, I've led a tank platoon. I've been a company XO. I had a chance to be a company commander for a period of time because my, my commander was ill. So, um, uh, you know, I learned how to lead people and saw great leadership in this battalion command, this task force commander that did so well at the National Training Center. Um, but I didn't know business. You know, I'd gotten an MB, I'd gotten a systems management manage, uh, major uh, master's basically or an MBA along the way, um, but I hadn't been in a business business environment. So um, a transition out and Striker gives me the opportunity to start doing something right away. So, okay, you've, you've managed projects for the military. We're going to have you manage a project for us. And it happened to be, I mean, for the little division that I joined at Stryker, it happened to be their most important project at the time. So I had this tremendous responsibility, um, which is the, very similar to the to what you're given in the Army. And, you know, you're driven to succeed, so you figure it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had – there was enough people in the organization and enough – um, smarts, if you will, all around the project teams that I that I had the chance to lead. That we we figured out how to be successful, and um, and you apply those those leadership concepts. So I had the opportunity to apply those leadership concepts and those ways of managing a project and ways of managing people uh, in a business environment, and learned the technology of it along the way. Mm. And you were mentioning the twenty percent year-on-year -year growth and 20% quarterly growth, correct? Were you part of the team that was driving that? Absolutely. Okay. Everyone was part of that team. Everyone drove. Everyone had a, had some tie to 20% growth. That was one of the powerful parts of that environment. Everyone felt that they could make a difference. You know, there was a, I remember there was a quality inspector that you wouldn't think that this person was tied into the 20% growth objective, but he would be. You know, there was one quarter that it would look like it was in jeopardy. So, he, and he knows 
that the production teams are working real hard to get out everything we need to to make, to hit our, our objective and to satisfy our customers. And he works 26 hours just mm. to make sure we got everything done that we could get done and to hit the objective because he, he didn't want to be the person that, that let it go. Mm. You know, everyone felt that ownership in it. You know, Striker, there were always things that we could do better. When you're at this pace of 20% growth, um, you 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 always want more resources. You always want more people. You always want more time. You always want to uh, to to do things better than than you did before. I mean, there's this constant desire to improve. This constant need to improve. And even though we we met the goal for 28 years in a row, if we look back and and anyone in that organization at the time, as you look back on any particular period of time, any particular year, any particular project, there are always things that you could have done better from a global standpoint. You know, we, we learned a lot in the organization as we evolved. Um, you know, in the beginning of uh, Strikers history, we weren't very good at bringing the right kind of people into the team. Mm. You know, there was a unique environment there. But being able to identify and understand those kinds of folks that are going to fit into this environment was a real challenge. Uh And we weren't very good at it. So we eventually became great at this. But boy, it it took a long time and a lot of work and a lot of effort by by a number of people. Um, You know, information systems. We were horrible at information systems. We Mm. we We had all these separate divisions, which was powerful. And part of our culture was focused through decentralization. Yet at the same time, you know, we had all these different MRP or ERP systems running in the same corporation. So, yeah. <laughs> it was a it was a mess. Yeah. Um, so when you're when you're growing that fast, there's so many things that you'd like to be able to do better. You don't have the time to do because there are other priorities or other things that uh, that uh, or you don't have the people um, that interfere and. Um, and you figure it out later. And eventually, you know, the company got to the point where we were able to you know, do a project. Okay, we're going to do a single ERP implementation for the entire corporation. And we're going to do, um, we, we developed this relationship, as I mentioned, with Gallup. So we got a lot better at recruiting and whatnot. So it's um, it, it's a lot of things that you, you know, you, you focus on those things you do really well. Uh-huh. And over time, you're able to... Um, you know, stop having the things you don't do well holding from holding you back. So let's transition over to the book. What inspired you to write the book? Well, kind of as we've mentioned, I had the chance to be a part of these two extraordinary organizations. You know, I had a chance to start a business at Stryker um, and, and grow that to a, a very you know a significant size for the market that we were in. But it was too just extraordinary experiences. And so I felt compelled to tell the story of it and uh, and try to do it in a fashion that provided lessons for other people to learn from in the hopes that uh, if you read this book, maybe you'll be able to be a part of or create, if you will, um, your own Task Force 468 or Striker Corporation and, and have that kind of performance. Okay. And I know one of the th- key things and the key things we've discussed already is culture. So how can a company or an organization create a culture that inspires, um, you know, leadership from the bottom up? Yeah, you establish very clear goals. 
Um, and they're and they're broad-based, highly visible. Uh, whether you're whether people are accomplishing the goals or not, you give folks the resources to go out and accomplish them, and then you let them go, and mm. go do it. And you monitor it along the way, and you have you know you have high expectations, high accountability, and high responsibility, and you get these kinds of results. And I know you mentioned somewhere in the book, the book is coming out in September next month in a couple of days, but you mentioned that participation trophies are very bad for leadership. So um, why is that? Because now the culture is is basically, you know, if you watch kids in Little League or in high school, everybody gets a trophy just basically for showing up. And some people have said that gives everyone a sense of entitlement. So why do you... Uh, come out to say that but those type of trophies are very bad for leadership. Yeah, I'm not sure it's as strong of a statement as that um, okay. bad for leadership, but because um, it, it depends on the kind of environment you're trying to create. At okay. Stryker and at Task Force 468, though, the environment was about excellence. Okay. And so the intent in the reward system was to reward and recognize excellence okay. and to inspire other people to achieve that. So if everyone gets a trophy because <laughs> of participation in something, you're not necessarily creating the kind of environment where excellence is what is recognized and rewarded and expected and, uh, and aspired to throughout, throughout the team. You know, Stryker was an absolute extreme in reward and recognition, but it was all about achievement of things that were going to drive 20% earnings growth. You know, we racked and stacked everything and it was visible. And so your performance was out there and could be measured, compared, looked at versus all of your peers in the company. And you didn't get an award for participating. You got awards for being the best. And it drove people, it drove people to try to be the best. Right. You know, we had a, there was a joke award that was started called the Snorkel Award. It was given to the division that didn't meet their 20% objective in any particular month or was the lowest in terms of growth in any particular month. And you didn't want the Snorkel Award. You know, it sounds, in today's environment, people would say, well, that's, you know, that's not very nice and, uh, you know, not necessarily a great motivator. At, at Stryker, it wasn't questioned you know, whether this award should exist or not, it's, well, yeah, well, I'm not meeting my objectives, so I get this award and I want to give it to somebody else. Interesting. And Gary, as we're almost about to start wrapping up, I just have a few wrapping up questions and then um, we'll have to say goodbye. So one sure. thing for me is that um, right now, I think millennials make up about 40 to 45% of the workforce and from the research and the studies I've done in the past, it says that um, millennials kind of perceive good leadership differently from other generations. Now, would you agree to that? What, what has your experience been like over the last few years? Yeah, my experience with, um, you know, the different generations that we, we worked with was, um, you know, millennials is our... Uh, it, to me, it's a powerful generation because you, you have a group of individuals that grew up somewhat in the, uh, you know, everyone gets a trophy environment. So there's high expectations for reward and recognition. And you have to recognize that you have to understand that about the people that are on your team. Yet at the same time, 
you know, they're, they're technologically proficient. If you give them the reward and recognition that they, that they expect or want or are seeking, boy, it has a powerful impact on it. You can build a team of millennials a lot easier than it is to build a team of baby boomers because they're used to being a part of a team. And you know what? They're used to having super adult supervision of those teams because, uh, you know, for most of the millennial, my, my kids are in that generation. For most of the millennial generation, you know, when they went out to play kickball, um, they, they didn't do that with themselves. You know, there was an adult and a coach and all this type of stuff, which there's advantages and disadvantages to that. But what I found is, boy, it's a lot easier in many ways to build a team out of millennials because they're looking for um, some level of structure, some level of of uh, expertise in being able to play the game or being able to do whatever it is you're, you're trying to accomplish in your business. And if you, if you can, if you can structure things that way, you, you develop a, a, a team environment and a, and a good camaraderie right away. So I, I'm not sure I'm answering the question for you, but well, um, you, you know, I found it, I you found are. it a fascinating generation to work with and you, you, you let them differently. You have to lead them differently. But if you figure out how to lead that generation effectively, then it's a really powerful, powerful thing. And what are some of the signs of a great leader? Wow, that's a, a question that we could go on for ages about. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, looking at the themes that, that are timeless, the themes that these two leaders I, I focus on in, in commanding excellence are, are timeless themes. You know, being able to establish a clarity of purpose in any organization is just critical critical to success. Um, being able to then have that very clear purpose and get the rest of the organization to buy into it at a profound, deep, meaningful level is critical to excellence. And then, and then creating an environment of open, honest, direct communication that's that's focused on being able to do what we're intending to do is again a, a basic timeless tent uh, precept of leadership that um, that can create organizations that achieve things that many people believe are impossible. Based on your experience thus far, do you think that leaders are born or are made? So, is there such a thing as a natural? leader or can can someone develop the leadership ability over time you know i think that um it's it there's there's a twofold answer to that question not everyone can be a leader um because because of the family background the how they grew up what they learned how they developed as a as a human being you know some people are great individual contributors um some people are great individual contributors and great leaders, and some people are just, they might not be very good individual contributors, but they could be great leaders. Um, but that doesn't mean that training and development and, and things like West Point don't count. They count profoundly because, you know, it's just, this happens a lot in uh, in business and in, in organizations today. And people, people will send to leadership training their, their worst leader because, well, that person needs help you actually get your biggest return by sending your best leader to the leadership training. You get the biggest, it's like, uh, you know, speed reading courses. Uh When uh, uh, folks that go to speed reading courses, you know, you think, well, I've got this employee, they only read 200 words a minute. So I'm going to send them to speed reading. And you know what? They might get to 600 words a minute. 
and that's pretty good. That's a you know three threefold increase. But if you take the person that reads a thousand words a minute, you know this is kind of naturally a, a good reader. They might get to ten thousand or twenty thousand words a minute. You know a ten x or a twenty x improvement. And leadership training is the same way. I mean, if you find those folks that you know they have that natural ability to get people to follow them. But you give them the training, you give them the, ex the expertise, you send them to West Point, you send them to Harvard Business School or whatever, then the return on that investment will be 10 times hmm. the return somebody that really doesn't have, you know, it really is an individual contributor and doesn't necessarily have those aspirations to be a leader. You know, leaders, they want to make other people's lives better. Hmm. And not everyone is like that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Yeah, and with that said, we're uh, just about to wrap up. So, Gary, where can people um, get the book, the new book? Well, it's um, you know going to be at bookstores across the nation on September fifth, Barnes and Noble, you know, across the United States and some international locations. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it on 800 CEO Reads if you want to buy it in volume. They've got some good discounts there. And then, you know, iBooks and Kindle and, and most of the major booksellers, it'll be in there on September 5th. You can pre-order it today. You know, just search for Commanding Excellence on uh, on any of those sites and it'll come up for you. Are you active on social media and uh, what's your website? Yeah, my website is i like iPod, igarymorton.com. And um, I'm active on LinkedIn and Facebook. I've got an author page in, um, on Amazon. And I've got a um, you know, Facebook page kind of dedicated to commanding excellence as well. Great, great, great. And I'll link I'm also on Twitter, and I'm trying to build a Twitter following. So follow me, at GaryMorton6. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you finding Twitter thus far? I've not really been able to crack the Twitter code myself. You know, it, it's interesting with Twitter. I'm not an expert on social media and anything, but, uh, you know, with LinkedIn and Facebook, you're able to, you know, ask your contacts to your contacts to connect with you right yes. away. And Twitter and Twitter, I am quite figured out how you get people to connect with you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as intuitively obvious as it is on LinkedIn or Facebook or most of the other media pages. Yeah, and I think that's one channel I tend to neglect myself and just stick with Facebook and uh, LinkedIn just because it seems you can do a lot more with those two platforms and Twitter. Yes, it might be more rapid fire, but I don't know, just preference, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll link to all the links in the show notes, Gary. Um, it's really been a pleasure having you aboard for the last couple of minutes to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and um, obviously the new book, Commanding Excellence. We'll, we'll check it out once it comes out on September 5th, correct? Great. Great. Yeah, and she, you know, in, in your area, where you are in the world right now, um, I, I sure would hope that these lessons from these two organizations that were, you know, they were in the United States, but I think they're applicable across all kinds of organizations and all types of cultures. Um, and I, I hope they can be of help. Oh, yeah, Gary, they definitely are, because the main problem that we have, especially in Africa, as you've seen in the news, is a leadership problem. We have leaders that 
once they get into power they, do, they don't want to leave until they're dead you know you have presidents that have been in power for 40 years and then their kids take over and they're in power for another 40 years and things still stay the same you know people dying of poverty and hunger while the yeah. ruling family are just enriching themselves so these are basic problems that all these lessons you shared can be translated and applied to the younger generation that are listening to this podcast that will take it you know ruminate on the subject and then say okay i'll start learning more about this so that when my time comes when i am able to crack my way and get into the halls of power i'll be able to do a better job compared to the people that have come before me so so the the principles you've shared today are timeless and they're applicable across the board it's just letting enough people hear them so that they know that there's a better way to do things as opposed to what they've seen done over and over again over the years yeah and the leader that does what you just talked about they will change the world yeah Great, great. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Gary. I truly appreciate you spending the time. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.